What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I'm here with my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, I think we gotta give a bit of a eulogy here for our favorite product ever, Movie Pass. We knew it was too good to be true. Way too we good. We knew to it be wouldn't true. last forever. We didn't expect <laughs> it to be so abrupt and so inconvenient. <laughs> We got a lot of stuff we're going to be talking about today. We got Santa Gold, Denzel Curry, both dropped new albums. We're going to be talking 8th grade and a lot of Mission Impossible. So if you like us, if you support the pod, please hit subscribe. Follow us on SoundCloud and on Twitter at NostalgiaPod. But man, Thursday night, I go to look at showtimes for Mission Impossible the next day. And I'm like, ah, this is a weird message. I just click through it quickly, figuring they're like, hey, check out peak pricing again. Go to use MoviePass the next day, Mission Impossible. Wouldn't even work. It was all grayed out. Mm. Wouldn't let me select. Premium showing, as they put it. Yeah. Annoying. So text you. We start doing a little investigative work. And MoviePass had a service outage Thursday because they're out of money. Couldn't pay for tickets. So the whoever was facilitating that like shut it off i mean as of yesterday uh, as of saturday actually i went back to the movies to watch eighth grade movie pass was also not working yeah. for me then i, I know some of the people it was working for but stop working like mixed. saturday afternoon again after being out like a day so i was able to use it that saturday morning but then it went out yeah. again saturday night well dave i'm just gonna ask you is movie pass dead it's uh certainly not life support <laughs> i think the movie pass we all knew is dead as a doornail interesting thing you can just look at is Helios Matheson, the analytics firm who bought MoviePass and was owning it really since they picked up a lot of steam last August when they dropped the price to $9.99. And their shares were so low, they did a reverse split to avoid being delisted on the NASDAQ because their share was so cheap. And if they didn't have this reverse split, the shares would be a few cents. Like it's super, super cheap. And the reverse split by all the business research I did was designed to get people to buy the stock because the stock was now worth more. But no one's right. buying because no one believes in it. And, you know, they ran out of money because they've been, they disclosed this in April, they've been losing $20 million a month because they just weren't taking in as much money. And, you know, we knew, we expected that they would start to make things more expensive. It only makes sense. You go really cheap to get in the user base and then you start trying to make as much money back as you can. It's, I mean, Amazon has done this, right? Raising Prime mm-hmm. up yep. year after year, Netflix as well. And that you know, most people would be okay with that, um, but to have peak pricing go as much as eight dollars a ticket um, really loses the utility for most people. And the fact that it was all, and this is kind of their whole thing, which is why it's they're they're tough to root for at the moment, is because their customer service and messaging has been so poor and like so like abundantly like tone deaf. It's like you're not smarter than the internet. You're not smarter than the people that are smart enough right. to use your too-good-to-be-true service, right? So to say that peak pricing is based off of availability and demand and then just to blatantly apply it to every showtime after 12 p.m., like, it is what it is. And then you saw the people online posting, why do you have peak pricing on this theater when there's five of us in here, you know? Oh, because your algorithm said that other people in another city really want to see it? Like, it's just a bunch of BS because they need the money. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I think uh, if it does last, it uh, we're going to see stuff like that. And I think what really, really sucks is the Mission Impossible Fallout, which is not available on the service this weekend. They're actively deterring yeah. people going to see the hottest movie of the weekend because it's a money-saving move. So, you know, do I think they're immediately going to die? Yeah, maybe. Or they'll, you know, be able to sustain themselves via some kind of investment. Don't know where that's coming from. But, yeah, it's going to be uh, tough. So I've been uh, trying to use it as much as I can now. While uh, it's still technically alive. How many movies have you seen? Fifty nine. <laughs> In nine months, it's and, like a dollar, you, dollar something a movie. I was gonna say you bought the annual subscription. I did not. Right? No, I'm paying nine ninety nine. No. So if I had you ah. paid what seven ninety nine, six. Yeah, I think I think it was yeah seven ninety nine yeah. months. So, like so if someone else had the the annual, they'd be I'd be betting even less if it was me. Yeah, I think I've seen around like twenty twenty low twenty. So. Uh, I'm. I mean, I'm coming around four dollars a movie, yeah. which is phenomenal. Which is exactly why this this is a service that can't last, and it's too bad because, really, it's a great idea. And you know, you see AMC's uh, A list, um, which now it seems to be where a lot of people yeah. in bigger cities mm-hmm. will go. I don't have an AMC near me, so it's not something I would be able to we- use. But it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, AMC is the biggest theater chain in the nation, and mm-hmm. AMC A list is twice as much, nineteen ninety nine. 
but it does all those things that like the movie passed, which is kind of inconvenient about, right? You can use it on 3D and IMAX and Dolby mm-hmm. Cinema, no problem. You can reserve ahead of time. You can see more than one movie in a day. You can have a repeat viewing. So it's three times a week, so 12 times a month. I mean, I've used MoviePass 10 times a month, I think two or three times. So I'm looking at that. I'm like, yeah, the calendar might be bad or I had a heavier week, but I could get down with a- A-list. And the math for me would still be like three-something a movie with the amount of movies I'm seeing. So right. I think A-list, I mean, they lost a lot of goodwill this weekend. So I'd, I don't know if any you know, comm score anyone could tell us like how many subscribers they've hemorrhaged. But A-list, if they do plan to keep it around, is... Uh, Plenty, plenty good deal, and even at Alamo Draft House, you know, a, a more boutique theater, like the dining options. They they announced their Alamo season pass, and while it's not available yet, um, I think that's the ultimate, you know, effective movie pass, whether it lives or dies, is that it's affecting this change in the theater, and this is needed because movie tickets were way down last year, and you know, I mean, what's the stat? I have it right here: eleven percent of all movie tickets are bought by people that go eighteen times a year, and they buy half of the total movies in the country. There's another 200 million people, 89% of moviegoers, that only see the blockbusters. They go maybe four to five times a year. And MoviePass, or now AMC, A-List, they bring those people in more. That's what the movie business needs because you're competing with YouTube and Netflix and Amazon and video games and everything else, obviously, right? So Mm -hmm. I think ultimately the effect of this subscription plan going to a theater is good for the industry. But MoviePass, the ultimate uh, bargain... Yeah, it's, it's gone. Yeah, definitely too good to be true. And I think everybody knows it's going to be dead, at least as we know it. Um, but yeah, like you said, I've seen people compare it to like the Napster of movie going. So it's definitely starting a good trend. I think subscription-based things are the way theaters need to go. Um, and I, I'm excited to see what's going to come of it. I'll always remember fondly these eight months I was able to use MoviePass. So no ill feelings towards it. It was great for me in a lot of ways, so. If you weren't in on it, like our guy Chris Labataglia got it like three weeks ago. Shitty timing. <laughs> yeah, I had another buddy but, as well. I, I, I was the one who convinced him to get it. And I was like, yeah, there'll be peak <laughs> pricing now, so it's not quite as cheap, but you'll still get your money's worth. You like movies. And he just got it. I don't think he's used it yet. <laughs> Came in Thursday. So <laughs> why don't we jump to some some music, though, because we, we got a lot to, to get through. Let me start with Santa Gold. I don't want the Gold Fire Sessions, her fourth album she really blew up in 2008 with her debut album santa gold i mean before that she was with the uh the philly-based band stift uh which is not a really well-known band but uh, i think you hear a lot of their their sound like that funk sound coming through she's a very eclectic artist i'm sure if if you've ever like listened to santa gold the song she'll probably know are either les artiste or uh, lights out i think is a really popular one of it as well She's sampled a lot. Like you recognize her tune, yeah. even if you don't know it's Santa Gold. I also ride really hard for the song "You'll Find a Way." There's a great remix on uh, the first album of that song, which is just phenomenal. But th- this album kind of hit me out of nowhere. I wasn't even aware Santa Gold was going to be dropping a new album. I was pleasantly surprised though, because I I thought this album had a lot of really great things about it, and mostly for me, it was production focus as what yeah. what surprised me, just how seamlessly it flowed together. But I think this is your first time really digging into her catalog. What was your take just on her earlier stuff? Yeah, the first time I heard of Santa Gold was on her feature on Long Live ASAP, ASAP Rocky's debut album. And then I didn't realize mm. that now Santa Gold's 41. Like, I didn't, you know, really yeah. understand who she was. And she's, she's interesting, like you said, because she's kind of existed, like, outside, like, the major label music industry. And she's someone who probably should have had a bigger career. But she, you know, didn't, I guess, didn't play ball, wasn't, you know, built up enough. I mean, she's on um, an indie an indie label right now. It's not like she's getting a big push. And I think it's technically being called a mixtape. But either way, she has three albums in this and, you know, solo anyway. And I think what stood out to me, both good and bad, I guess, is it was pretty ho- homogenous, the record. Like, it sounded, this, it was kind of samey, I guess. So, like, that vibe is good, but it was really just that, committed to that one vibe. And where I think, like, her earlier stuff is more, like, like, I think it's like what, like reggae fusion. It's reggae with other stuff, pop, R and B, dancehall. This new one, I think, is just really straight, like poppy dancehall, right? And it's good. Like I, I liked it a lot. I think it's um, it's quite enjoyable. You just put it on at any point, and it sounds good. When Santa Gold broke out in two thousand eight, she used to draw these huge crowds at festivals, and her shows were always huge. There's a point where she was uh, opening for the Beastie Boys on one of their last tours around that time, and 
the crowds like everybody would get there early to see santa gold i mean obviously the bc boys are a huge draw at that time and they still would be today if they could tour unfortunately you know they're not around or only one of them's left but she really her momentum really fell off and i think it is a little bit of that like uh homogenous i mean like there's there's some variation but i think a lot of it comes back to her hits all kind of rest on what you talked about that like poppy more like uh dance hall like 80s sound almost like there's like a real 80s pop sound to it um and that but i actually think that's where like her her best songs come from this album too uh like perfect life and crashing your party and goldfire all kind of have a very similar like tone and beat to them but i think that those songs just really popped off as songs that were really enjoyable and had a lot of fun with um i think that's really what she's going for it's just songs that people can enjoy she does have a lot of different influences and i think that's probably why it's hard for her to find a label that can promote her the way she, that she could be and probably should be promoted because I think she could be a bigger star than she is. Uh, but she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to meld to like traditional standards, and I I give her credit for that. I'd probably give this album like a uh, I don't know, like a six or seven out of ten. I thought it was a solid, strong effort. So probably her best one or my favorite one since her uh, debut. So check it out. Tell me about your guy Denzel Curry. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember the name from. His uh, 2016 XXL, uh, you can check out our uh, take on that, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. Um, and I was really surprised by this album just because I wasn't that into him. And I left feeling like this kid, this, kid, this guy has a really strong career ahead of him. Yeah, definitely. Denzel Curry's third album, Taboo, dropped last Friday, stylized, what, TA-1300? Don't, I don't think anyone knows why he's doing it that way, but taboo anyway <laughs> Denzel Curry I've been a fan ever since I really found out about him and yeah, he, he was on the XXL 2016 but he wasn't the most famous guy on that list that was the year for 21 and Uzi and Kodak and Yachty and Little Dicky and Designer you know all guys bigger than him so he kind of flew under the radar with that um, but he's been good and everyone's been fucking with him because he's yet another uh, firebrand out of fucking Florida he's from Miami and he's someone who came up as part of the Raider clan, uh, headed by Space Ghost Perp. That's one of like, the first you know, SoundCloud collectives, and they collaborated with ASAP Mob early on. Um, that's how they uh, you know, kind of broke on the scene. And then Denzel broke off from that and went solo. And it's funny that, because he actually cla- was clapping back at Smoke Perp for saying, when Smoke Perp said he started SoundCloud rap, and Denzel's like, you spell Raider clan wrong, dog. Like, it was us. <laughs> but either way, <laughs> he, he's been around for a while, and he's, always been really interesting i don't think he has any one good project per se like there's always been like a lot of good Mm -hmm. stuff on there but nothing was really as cohesive as taboo and i mean imperial has probably really really popped off for um ult and naughty head with Rick ross he's just got a bunch of bangers seen with the joy badass and then his biggest hit today it's actually off of uh, one of his eps called ultimate from 2015 Uh, you'd recognize the beat event if you heard it and now, coming into this, you know, we just kind of wanted to see, like, what will Denzel Curry, like, do? Because he obviously, like, thinks about it, and he, he's not using trap production. He's not talking about all the drugs and the money he spends. He never has. But, like, what is next for him? And have Taboo come out, an album where, like, it's kind of a concept album, right? There's the three uh, stages mm-hmm. or acts in the album, right? The dark, the gray, and, yeah. the, and the black, the gray, and the white, I think is what he's calling it. Mm-hmm. And... I was really impressed with this just because it was just basically more of what we get from Denzel Curry, what we expect from him, the rapid fire flows, the aggressive de- uh, delivery, and just more of that, more variety. Um, but there's like all different cadences he would do, whether you'd switch up his flow mid song, uh, he would almost like sing some of his choruses in a sense, but it was really just kind of switching up how he was rapping. I was really impressed. And obviously the energy's there, but also I think there's like some really cool lyrics in here, like, um, like perks. Mm-hmm. That's an open, attack against all the druggy culture and rap and yep. you know songs like blackest balloon and um the lead song lead single cloud cobain like i think there's there's so much here and i really gotta listen to it again because i think it's pretty dense but i was really impressed i i mean i think there's a lot of great things that, and you touched on most of them I, I think the thing that i was most taken aback by was just how um like you talked about his cadences but i think there's an intensity that comes through as he raps and as he delivers his lines that um, he doesn't need to do it through like shouting or you know kind of the ways like some of his contemporaries like xxx i think sometimes there's times you just be basically like screamo you know in a way but he can deliver that feeling just through his voice which i i think is great um and i i thought the another thing that was great about it was that 
it was really layered production the songs were um like very intricate the beats and there was a lot of like things going on that uh like he'd have like some like pianos in the background layered by like some uh, not really trap but different like sort of drum beats throughout and it was it just was really uh a a delight to listen to i listened to it twice this weekend because i wanted to get the feel in uh, in the headphones and in the car and in the car i thought it was phenomenal so definitely Mm -hmm. something to ride to for sure yeah i agree the only song i didn't really like was sirens i thought that was where he went too singy i was like that's a miss like you know kudos Mm -hmm. for trying it but no i don't think that worked but yeah other songs at sumo which was another lead single that's Mm -hmm. just an ultimate like let me spit my shit as fast as possible you know banger and i thought switch it up another one which is really cool where as the title implies he switches it up in the song so I think Denzel Curry, he's, you know, I don't think this is going to have big numbers first week. Um, he's yeah, he's big on the internet. Rap fans know him, but he's yep. not mainstream by any means. So, um, you know, he's someone I like to tell people about just because I think he surprises anyone who listens to him. But, um, yeah, he's much like we talked about, you know, to a lesser extent with Wi-Fi's funeral. But Denzel Curry, I think, is even more obvious where these are guys that even if they're not super big or super mainstream, you can tell they're going to have a long career just because they have they're actually really trying with the music they're making. Absolutely. Yeah. He's going to be a solid artist for a while. Probably just to shout it, shout it out. Probably my favorite song on it was balloons, uh, black balloons. One of the, the second song on the album really just, uh, caught my ear. So check that out. And we already put, uh, both songs from Santa gold and Denzel Curry on our, uh, best of playlist. So that's nostalgia best of 2018 on Spotify. Uh, please follow and share with your friends. Okay. So why don't we talk about, these movies here why don't we get to eighth grade first because this is a movie that that's been out for a couple weeks now a limited release and then this was the first weekend where it was a wider scale release i believe i mean barely it's only like a hundred two hundred theaters so it's still not very wide but yeah so this is bo burnham's first uh film that he's directed that's not a comedy special um and he wrote and directed this currently sitting at a 99 percent on rotten tomatoes and 90 percent on metacritic i mean if you want to talk about getting those good reviews this is mm-hmm. this is one that the critics are That's loving what we call consensus. And do you think that <laughs> yeah do you think that 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 consensus is deserved though i mean i think it is we're getting to mission impossible fall another movie that's i think at 97 percent and 98 yeah whatever so it i didn't like love eighth grade the way like a lot of people mm-hmm. do but i still think it's good it would get a positive review from me and that is what Rotten Tomatoes calculates. So the consensus right. of positivity is what is correct, right? But this is not a 10 mm-hmm. out of 10 mil- movie for me, but that's no. not what a 98% tells you anyway. So uh, I think that's fair because I don't see how you really could watch this movie and be like, yeah, bad, 5 out of 10. Yeah. Like, no, no one would say and think that. There's a lot to like about this movie, and I think probably my favorite thing was the performance by Elsie uh, Fisher, who played the main oh, character, yeah. Kayla. You know, we're going to be talking about Mission Impossible, which one of the things I think I like about most about Mission Impossible is that it's like a movie's movie where you can like suspend suspend belief and it doesn't have to be realistic and you're like, okay with it. Eighth grade is almost too realistic. Um, And that's that's the thing that I think Elsie Fisher brings is her character felt so real. And I think anyone that goes through that time of their life and has any sort of social issue or any sort of. Uh, feeling of insecurity, which almost everybody goes through at some point, can look at her and say, ah, I can relate to that moment, right? I, I know exactly what she's feeling right there. <laughs> and that's that's the thing that the movie does best, and almost to a point where it's uncomfortable at times. <laughs> I mean, I there were moments where I was like looking through my hands at the theater because I just felt so like so much secondhand embarrassment and awkwardness for her. Yeah. Uh, I mean, talk about your your perception of Fisher's performance and maybe other performances. Of yeah, the no, I, I think that's that's right. Um, This is the first movie of any, you know, I think I mean, not the first period, but the first movie of any, you know, credible note that accurately captures how Gen Z kids uh, yeah. act uh, in the modern world, you know, um, mm-hmm. the way it portrays, uh, portrays the effect of social media on uh, the social life of young kids, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that's what's so impressive about the movie is that it so nails that, which is something that like older people will always like throw stones at because they don't understand it. You know, the, the, the massive anxiety that something like social media does to affect on people and how it, the way people act on social media is very different from the way they act in real life. Um, in a lot mm-hmm. of cases, especially for kids now that are coming up in this world, someone like me and you yep. who 
you know, came up just really before it blew up. So we kind of have the best of both worlds with that, right? Like we also know what a CD mm-hmm. is and a VHS, yep. as well as our <laughs> know how to use Instagram. We know we, we were both. Um, a cassette, a cassette tape, <laughs> exactly. But like these Gen Z kids, they're, they're the next generation. They're, they're they're that's not the world they know. But the fact that this movie actually sh- shows you that is so impressive. And you know, I, I don't, I, I I don't know what to make of Bo Burnham as like a creator. Still, like he came up as a YouTube star, then became a popular stand up, then he directed some stand up specials from like Jerron Carmichael and Mulaney. Mm-hmm. And I made this movie and uh, Chris Rock. Oh yeah, and Tambourine, right? And at this point, like he's made this movie, and I think his sensibilities are really impressive, and the fact that he was able to cast mm-hmm. it right, and uh, you know, I thought his camera was pretty cool at times. The way he would he would move it around and really get close up on Elsie's face, I think was really effective. But I'm still not really sure where I stand on him. I think I just want to see more, but obviously, a you know, yeah. a pretty stellar debut film by all accounts. Obviously, yeah, it's funny because I was thinking about another movie we did recently which was uh, we, re- we reviewed recently which was uh boots riley's sorry to bother right. you and that was his first mm-hmm. film as well and they're they're such different like scales there i mean eighth grade is such a, a small story about one child or child becoming a teenager and boots riley's looking at the story of a whole socioeconomic political uh perspective and, and system that is uh, affecting people in a lot of negative ways but they each had these these perspectives that I think tell important stories and the stories about the moment. Like you said, Burnham's really catching Gen Z for the first time, like and really telling the story accurately of what it's like to be Gen Z. And he does it in a lot of interesting ways, which I think give me a lot of hope for him as a creator moving forward. Like you talk about that persona that you portray online and the way he uses uh, El- uh, Kayla's uh, YouTube yes. videos to portray a different person online than she actually is when she's right. offline talking about self-confidence um, and bettering yeah. yourself when she's not taking any of her own advice yeah very yeah. effective it's really smart really really smart um i also thought like the tracking shot he did where she was walking to the pool yep. was really and the way he was like showing the people at the pool and the things that they were doing to kind of create this almost like zoo like wilderness <laughs> like animal animalistic feeling was really great so, so there's a lot of a lot of things a lot of storytelling tricks in there that i think are really really good um he also creates a lot of atmosphere like when she's sitting in the back of that the of the car with that um older teenager yeah, the senior then or plays truth right? and dare with mm-hmm. her it really creates this feeling of like oh shit yeah, like, tense and like the lighting is great it's it's fantastic so i i think he has a at least as a videographer and storyteller good career now as a director we'll see moving forward mm. hopefully he's able to continue to translate it right but yeah i, I also like that music cue he had whenever uh her crush came <laughs> on screen it was just like blast <laughs> out of nowhere i thought that was that was effective and smart yeah i think they kind of hammer it home at the end when they're when she's at the mall and they're like how old were you when you got snapchat you know it's just, it's just <laughs> yep. something that's so prevalent in the in kid, these kids lives and i think it, it's it's done well and I think the the only thing that was a little questionable to me was just that, like, I thought the relationship with her dad was a little, I don't want to say unrealistic, but I kind of, like, raised an eyebrow a few times. Like, no fucking dad lets their kid wear headphones and use their phone at the table like that. You know, the dinner table? Like, I'm sorry. You might be surprised. I don't know, man. If anything, they just say, like, hey, take your dinner and go watch TV with it, you know? Like, I don't know. I thought that mm. was that was weird, especially because, like, by all counts, he's, like, the most loving dad you know so like right. i don't know their relationship seemed a little uh contrived to me but it was fine mm-hmm. you know and I, I like the way it ended it concluded i actually thought josh hamilton who played her dad was really really uh good in terms of playing this kind of like uh, this dad trying to figure out how to be a parent you know he was talking to her at the end and almost got like a call me by your name type vibe with Alberg's monologue at the end to uh timothy chalamet mm-hmm. you know oh sure i got that kind of vibe when they're sitting around the fire i thought he delivered that really well and i think he just kind of playing this dad is trying to figure it out and he even kind of admits that around the fire like when your mom left i had really didn't i was really scared and didn't know if you were going to be okay and then you were but i mean it, check this movie out and support these small films yeah i think you know uh, we talked about sorry to bother you and uh, a couple of other small films like chap quick that we saw earlier in the year and these are important stories to be telling and, and to be supporting so 
definitely and yeah you said the soundtrack i think just in general it really caught like the the gen z feel so a lot of really great work on this a lot of things to like so check it out and a movie that a lot more people checked out mission impossible fallout fuck yeah loading up the fists <laughs> that was improvised apparently really yep. Fuck yeah! Well, I think I think we can both agree Henry Cavill was fantastic. I think this, this is easily his best role. He was fantastic. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Do you think it was better than than the CGI Superman lip from Justice League? <laughs> I think you know was that mustache necessary to his role as um whatever his name was uh, Walker? Um, probably not. One hundred percent yes, <laughs> yes, no. But did he keep it in Rocket? Fuck yeah! Um, yeah. No, I was really impressed with Cal. But yeah, I mean, overall, this movie, you've been seeing the hype. I think it has, last I checked, mm-hmm. 248 positive reviews to seven negative reviews. So like we said a little earlier, yeah. that's consensus from the critics. It also has a series high A cinema score and a uh, series high with the box office, $61.5 million first week. And one last thing, it also has the a better um, uh, audience breakdown, 55% uh, male, as opposed to Rogue Nation, which was over sixty, so that's a, a better thing to see uh, in terms of you know the, a more broad audience. So I think people were, people were excited about this movie, and uh, it delivers. It's one of the best action movies I've ever seen. I think, bar none. Do you think the the people that wrote the seven bad reviews like didn't know what movie they were going into? Yeah, because I, <laughs> I, I actually love to read them just because you always see that right, like like right. someone like gives. Any any of these any any movie that's not Oscar bait like a bad review for something obvious and dumb. It's like, yeah, we know who Ethan Hunt is. Yeah, maybe he's still not the most layered character in the world. That's not right. negative <laughs> to literally anyone who watches this film. That's not why we're there, you know. Yeah. So yeah, that, good question. I'd like to follow up on that and see what the hell they said. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is Mission Impossible Six movie. Yep. It's over a 22 year span, starting in 1996. Mission Impossible, the first one, came out, uh, which you know at the time kind of caught Cruise at the peak of his career. Uh, yeah. I mean, he just come or he it was it right before or just after Jerry Maguire? I'm forgetting. Just before. Just and before. he also then did Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. So yep. like this was right. This was it's funny because. You know, obviously, anyone who knows movies knows, like, 80s Cruise was, like, a ward spady, right? Like, A Few Good Men mm-hmm. and Born the Fourth of July. And I'm obviously... Brain Man. Yeah, of course. And that's obviously following mm-hmm. the blow-up with Risky Business and Top Gun, right? But he didn't... He, mm-hmm. like, stride, stride away from the action stuff after Top Gun. And then Mission Impossible comes out, you know, from Brian De Palma, of all people, too. And yeah. it's like, all right, now Cruise, the biggest movie star, is finally going to do movie star movies, but then he goes and does Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. And it's interesting just because, you know, up until now, he hadn't been really playing into that. But then you look at his filmography after Mission Impossible 2, which came out in 2000, when the movie gets more, the series gets more action packed. The first one's more espionage, right? And then he just, mm-hmm. he starts making all these, these, these action movies. And that's just who Tom Cruise is now, right? Like he kind of started doing the Liam Neeson late career thing before Liam Neeson did, uh, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of funny. Um, but I think this is uh, uh, perhaps the best. It's definitely the best, you know, stab he's done this so far. You know, do you do you think Mission Impossible is the best franchise uh, or movie franchise out right now? Yeah, I saw some of those takes going around. I, mm-hmm. If you want to say best action franchise, I think probably yes, just because if you think about the action franchises, the most successful one is Fast and Furious. But I think the Mission Impossible mm-hmm. movies are by and large better. Even though I'm, a, oh, and I like Fast and Furious, I find them very entertaining. But there's a lot more going on. Mission Possible, and after that, like, what action franchises do we have? We have a lot of stuff that's continued from the '80s, like Die Hard or Predator, but a lot, mm-hmm. um, Terminator. A lot of those series still have a lot of low points, a lot of bad films, and like mm-hmm. Mission Possible, the worst ones. I think most people two. would agree is two, and that's still watchable, still entertaining. You know, it's not right. like that's Terminator Salvation, so. It's yeah. and it's interesting because two actually probably had more of influence on what the films are now than definitely like one. You know, John Woo really brought this action packed. You know, crews hanging off the cliff in the the first mm-hmm. uh, opening scene. So <laughs> it, it kind of like set the table for what these movies, the direction they'd overall become, and like the the scope of it really is like one was like this great beginning. Two, 
kind of brought in like the huge stunts and then three through six have all just got kind of built on themselves getting better and better finding the correct pacing finding like a suaveness to it you oh, know yeah. you think about like rogue nation probably being the the epitome of that where they're in the tuxedos in the opera that, that scene's um, dynamite too amazing just uh, fantastic um so it, it's it's gotten better and better and it's kind of almost amazing because ghost protocol i mean thinking about where these movies kind of fall in like my rankings and mm-hmm. like I think like Ghost Protocol is just above Rogue Nation and Fallout's probably my number one, but all three of those at any point you could really put over the other, I think. Yeah. Depending on what you like. And to keep going, I mean, Mission Possible 3, 06, that's J.J. Abrams' de- uh, directorial debut. Ghost Protocol 2011 uh, finally comes back it comes back, and after like a contract negotiation, Cruz gets back into it, um, and that's by Brad Bird. It was his first movie yep. stepping away uh, from animation, right? Post Incredibles, and then Rogue Nation 2015. That's Chris McQuarrie, and you know Chris McQuarrie had helped like rewrite Ghost Protocol, and he comes in now. And he does Rogue Nation himself, and I think I have Rogue Nation just ahead of GP. But again, they're they're close. They're both great, and then they Chris McQuarrie comes back for Fallout. He's the first returning director in this series of six movies, which is pretty pretty unheard of. I mean, he's worked with Cruise a lot. Though. Yeah, you, I mean, he's worked so much stuff. Nine whether times. it's uh, directorial in debut, or he wrote the script, or he doc- worked on the script of Fish, mm. whether credited or uncredited. He's worked on him with a ton. And it's, uh, you know, we said, whether it's the good franchise, I think it's like the 26th highest grossing franchise in, in the world. Like the three Iron Man movies have grossed more than the six Mission Impossibles, for example. Makes sense. And... Yeah. Despite that, yeah, I think I think it's the best action franchise. I want to say it's the best franchise overall, but yeah, it's something. It's so weird that like it keeps getting better like this, and it's not like Fast and right. Furious, where Fast and Furious is getting better because it's getting more ridiculous and more absurd. That's really not what Mission Impossible mm-hmm. is doing because Fallout. Again, we'll, we'll we'll get to the movie in a second. <laughs> Fallout like <laughs> is so tactful and smart with its frenetic pacing and its set pieces that it just mm-hmm. seems like it's like peak blockbuster filmmaking you know no one would say yeah. fast five is peak blockbuster despite the fact that i think no. it's fantastic you know so right uh really impressed and it's really a, a fascinating series to kind of you know take a step back and like look and see how it's progressed both with and without Chris. Yeah, and like i mentioned before it embraces what it means to kind of be a movie that you can suspend belief you can go and just tell a story and have fun you don't need to not everything needs to make sense i mean you can see ethan basically get blown up and thrown into a car and he's just like walks away gets up two seconds later mm-hmm. um there you know they they wear these ridiculous masks like even in fallout when <laughs> yes i mean like, great spoiler, there's a part where yeah i mean there's there's so many uh like just outlandish and, and ridiculous things but it just works because they set the tone that you're just coming in, just enjoy the movie, just enjoy the stunts, and, and that's really what you come for. I wonder if, you know, going back to those negative reviews, if people were like, huh, that, there's no way that some a mask could be that realistic. Or like, <laughs> I, I would love to see like that sort of stuff, whatever their complaints are. Well, why don't we jump into Fallout specifically, though, because I think we've given enough of our take on it. I mean, this movie is number one at the box office right now, $61.5 million domestically, $153.5 million worldwide. We told you 98% of Rotten Tomatoes. People like this movie a lot. And I think, if, if anything, it's Cavill's performance. It's the fact that they really give a lot of people different time to shine. Mm-hmm. But the set pieces in this are amazing. Just unbelievable. I mean, there's a bunch of them to pick from, but which one was probably your favorite? I think what's so impressive about the movie is that it's long. It's like, what, two hours, 20 minutes? does oh, not God. feel long because of the pace, no. because of the number of set pieces, because of just how blatantly entertaining it is at all times. I mean, and it starts off so well, like you have that halo jump, which Cruz actually did. He Between practice jumps and getting the shot right, he jumped 106 times out of the plane, which is in, insane. No green screen. There's a cameraman jumping with him, really close to him, filming it. Like you read about how they had to like get that in, in focus, and they had to put lights in his mask so they could see his face, obviously, because it's a movie. And right. I mean, that scene was awesome. And then, oh, and you remember when the... the tube came out for his oxygen that was the real tube yeah. as well like there was no like that was the real oxygen he needed and after that you have the fucking bathroom scene mm-hmm. where that uh that asian actor i don't remember his name but he kicks cavill and Cruz's ass yeah it was amazing and that's funny because like we didn't really know what that scene was per se because all we knew was we had the you know cavill pumping his arms up right it was becoming a mm-hmm. meme 
but you know it's kind of like people are asking to do it the way like people are asking Chadwick Boseman to do Wakanda forever, right? <laughs> and then to have that scene, which we don't we don't really know what's happening in that scene from the trailers, we think maybe Cruz is fighting Cavill already, and mm-hmm. it's just it's so frenetic. And I think what's just cool about this movie is that Cruz throughout it, Ethan Hunt, you see Ethan, he is older. He's a little slower. Yeah. And he's washed. He's low key washed, getting his ass kicked a few times. <laughs> and I mean, that scene was that scene was, was killer. And Yeah. Oh, the, the choreography in that scene, I mean, if it's not up for an award, that's that's a travesty. Cause like the way that they use that pipe at one point mm-hmm. and like he swings it and the guy catches it and like flips him around, I was like, Yeah, that that scene did not disappoint. And then um, you know, like the way that they had to cover it up and you know, you have Rebecca Ferguson's Elsie uh, mm-hmm. Foss, Ilsa, yeah, yeah, back from Rogue Nation, and, and kind of saved the day. Just, uh, just an amazing scene. And we, I mean, we didn't even talk about, uh, you know, like the helicopter chase. Like you have the jump, but like the helicopter chase at the end. We in uh, what was it Kumar? Kashmir, or... Northern India. Kashmir, yeah. Which I mean, just unbelievable. If I didn't see this in IMAX, I'm not. I'm guessing you probably didn't. But everybody I've heard that scene in IMAX was like in awe of yeah. this. Um, it's I think that's just beautifully. That's shot. probably the most like impressive set piece the series has ever done, and probably one of the it's one of the best stunts in action movie history, I would say. And I think some people would still have the Burj Khalifa climb from Ghost Protocol ahead of this. You know, yeah. again, because uh, uh, again, Cruz also did that. But <laughs> I think this is so impressive because this really, sh- you know, like a lot of, like transformative acting roles get lauded, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's someone like. Leonardo DiCaprio and The Revenant, you know, really succumbing to the elements and being out there as Inaritu films him, basically freezing his ass off, right? Or you have something like Christian Bale where he loses, like, what, 100 pounds for the pianist or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But this, Cruz learned how to fly a helicopter in, like, five <laughs> weeks doing 16-hour days. He would have two crews with him because the only, you know, two eight-hour shifts. He was doing two eight-hour shifts for six weeks to learn how to fly a helicopter. And it's just like that kind of dedication just there's not enough done about it you know like a lot of people like to clown on cruise because of like the scientology shit and like he has had some weird personal things with his marriages like not denying that Mm -hmm. but his dedication to his craft is so you know impressive and like he let's not forget he broke his ankle making this movie and that shot's in the film like when he jumps across the 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 building when he's running on the roofs and he like he, he almost misses he breaks his ankle and he realizes he needs to finish the shot. He climbs up and you see him do that limp for the first time in the movie. He mm-hmm. limped. Oh, he's hurt? Oh, because he actually broke his fucking ankle and he finished the <laughs> shot. And they went on eight week hiatus and, you know, they had to pay the crews the whole time. So they didn't take another job, obviously. And then McCrory just started editing what, what they had while crews recovered. But, like, his dedication to this movie, like, they're going to keep making I'm these, obviously, well, given the critical and commercial success of Fallout. But, like, like I hope he doesn't fucking die doing this because he's already done a lot of crazy <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because when you think about like, stunts in movies that actors actually do, I think Cruz is probably like top three from just Mission Impossible movies alone. Just unbelievable. And he's fifty six. Um, it's not like he's young. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's funny to see like all all the roles that certain people were playing at, at his age, and then Tom Cruise looks like he could be like forty, forty five dude just doesn't age at this point it's or mm-hmm. he ages but in like the most graceful way you've ever seen it's a it's pretty awesome um yeah why don't we talk a little bit more about what we liked about cavill i mean obviously yeah he plays august walker and he's this huge guy and basically he's introduced as this just like he could give you one punch and it could kill you right kind of person yeah. but really i think what would made it good was the way that he kind of played the i mean spoiler alert the heel turn in this mm-hmm. like the whole time you're kind of like is this is this more of a Jeremy Renner, like he's going to be a uh, uh, sidekick mm-hmm. to Cruz, or is this? And then eventually he ends up being uh, a villain, kind of like most people in these movies too, right? And movies. like from the trailers, like there's that money shot of him like holding like the M60, the mini gun, right, and in yeah. the helicopter. So I'm like, pretty sure he was shooting at Cruz there, but why? So like I figured right. something happened, but yeah, I think. It's just like the most like multi layered role Cavill's done. Like Cavill's done some good stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was on the Tudors and. I liked Immortals. I thought he was really good with Army Hammer and Man from Uncle, right? And he's not my problem with Superman. I think, you know, the Superman and DCU's issues have been more with writing and plotting than Cavill. Yeah. I think Cavill's good as Superman. But this, I mean, he's just given a lot more to work with than I expected. Yeah, I was expecting more of him to right. be more like Renner's brand, who uh 
by the way, didn't come back for this because he had scheduling conflicts with Infinity War, the movie he wasn't in. Uh, so good answer. <laughs> but yeah, he's given a lot to do, both action-wise and you know carrying the plot. He's an integral to the plot. And then when he has the heel turn, I think it's a really well-constructed twist, uh, a nice callback to the masks that have been throughout the series. Mm-hmm. And then when he becomes the full villain, uh, he just fucking takes to another level. So yeah, yeah, I thought he was incredibly effective. And that you know, it's this is really fun movie too because this is the first Mission Impossible movie that actually feels connected to a previous film right like yeah. obviously characters have come back like Lu- Lu- uh, Ving Rhames and Ving Rhames has been in almost Ving, every single Ving one Ving has been in every one because he had a cameo in, in uh, uh, four and right. Cruz obviously is in all of them but then like yeah like Michelle Monaghan comes back a little bit as his, as his ex-wife right and then Elsie mm-hmm. Foss comes back from Rogue Nation and then so does fucking uh, Solomon Lane the bad guy of Rogue Nation he's actually integral to this plot so it actually felt right. like a world we had been in, and they were just building on mm-hmm. this world. Like Alec Baldwin comes back again, and they bring in Angela Bassett and bring in Cavill, and like mm-hmm. it, it just—it was a level up to me. I was so impressed, and again, that's despite the fact, <laughs> separate from the fact that it's so entertaining and so ridiculous yep. with these amazing stunts that are real stunts, it's just so well choreographed, both in the air and and the car chase. Again, the, that Paris car chase was money too with the motorcycle yep. when he goes around the fucking Absolutely. arc. Like, mm-hmm. ah, man, wonderful I mean, action. The, yeah, the action is amazing. and But I also really liked the moments that they gave each of the characters. And especially, mm-hmm. you know, if you, watch, if you watch the first couple, they had these top-notch actresses, and they didn't really utilize them. And I feel like the actresses got a lot more to do. Like, Vanessa Kirby in this one as yes. White Widow was fantastic oh, yeah. and electric. Every time she was on the screen, I, I couldn't look away from her, and she just like stole every scene she was in i really i mean i i love rebecca ferguson as, as elsa i mm-hmm. i think she's a great character and you know you start to learn a little bit more about her motives and, and what she's trying to accomplish and then you could see michelle moynihan come back and she's playing this doctor in a different country and really adds this emotional weight to the last scene and uh, you know adds another level of stakes to it i mean you're saving the world from nuclear war which is high enough stake as is but then really trying to save your your mm-hmm. ethan's wife um just some really great things and ving rames who for the whole series has kind of been like put on the shelf yeah, just in the like van playing the conscience yeah in the van literally um gets to be uh, like carry a lot of the emotional heft to the movie which i thought was uh, a really smart choice and really well deserved he's put Definitely. a lot of work into the series so i mean there's a lot of really and simon Pegg also with uh i thought he brought a lot of levity to the scenes yeah. he was in that's why um, he's there he and he's great. he's good at it you know um, I think yeah. they they probably gave Benji more due in uh, some of the earlier earlier ones since he came in with Definitely. Ghost Protocol, but uh, yeah, he's still effective. And, and you know, another scene we talk about the action so much because obviously it's it's the selling point. But early on, when they have that fake out with the nuclear weapons with Wolf Blitzer, right? Where they yeah. fake the <laughs> whole hospital room in the in the news reading, little fake news, right? Um, mm-hmm. That kind of gave and, and with with the mask of Wolf Blitzer, that gave me more like Mission Impossible One vibes. You know, yep. the more uh, espionage, uh, trickery scene. aspect to yep. it. They call it back to the mask again when they finally out uh, Cavill. So, uh, yep, it was. Uh, and the guy again, they can keep this story going with the apostles because, uh, you know, we still don't know much about those villains. So they just keep building on it. So, I, uh, mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to the next one. But in the meantime, I, I would love to see this again. But honestly, one of the big winners that no one's really talking about for this is Paramount. This is Paramount's film and. Paramount, of course, uh, their best, their big money maker has been Transformers, which uh, mm. is coming out next year. Uh, sorry, in December, Bumblebee, a smaller scale one with Haley Steinfeld, and they took Transformers Seven off the calendar. So, Mission Impossible could be their biggest franchise moving forward at the moment. So, they're happy that it's getting Paramount. critical attention and doing well. For, again, a franchise best opening weekend. So, good win for Paramount. They needed that. Yeah, absolutely. Just go see this film. If you like action films, if you like fun, I think just go enjoy it. You know, turn your brain off a little bit and enjoy this just for the amazing right. action like we And again, about. like and it, it's not just like dumb action the way Fast and Furious. I think it's very smart, very calculated the way it affects the plot, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, one thing I didn't mention before, but I think makes these films good is that they bring in elements of different types of stories that are really intriguing they have a mystery element in almost every single one trying to figure out like the who done it or who's who at any given time they have like heist scenes in certain ones so the mission impossible franchise in general is, it, it, it's action but it can bring a lot more to a the lot. table and 
yeah depending on what you really want to get out of it you can you can get that i mean even at points like love stories so did the uh i think that's the weakest part did the end get you the the fake out with the the nuclear uh mushroom cloud slash just being the sun did that that fake you out it got me for a second i was like oh fuck they did that no, they, I, no, they didn't. I mean, if they had done it, it would have been the ballsiest move. I mean, they're pretty much just like ending the franchise because <laughs> they're killing off all the, the main characters. Um, no, I just it, it, one one of the things I always laugh most at in these is just the like how time passes in, in <laughs> sure, that film universe. Sure. I mean, the fifteen minutes and they rode a helicopter, like, had like a ten minute fight on a cliff, and <laughs> there's a scene that under it, this scene's happening, right? And like, yeah, and that's another thing that like. There's some common things throughout the series. There's the cold open. Rogue Nation, he right. literally boards a plane from the outside, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like this one has it again right before the title card. For they actually do like a traditional uh, sequence, kind of like James Bond. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the race against time at the end. This one literally got done the last second. Yeah. And of course, there's a MacGuffin. What was it Ghost Protocol where they have to get somewhere like a minute thirty? They need to go like three miles, and he's like, "We can make it." And you're like, "I was like, no, you literally can't. Nothing on Earth can get you there." <laughs> but Ethan finds a way, man. Like he always does. So it's crazy. That being said, are you stoked for Tom Cruise's next role coming out next July? Do you know what it is? Uh, I'm not. Aware. Is it uh, Live Die Repeat? It's uh, not Edge of Tomorrow too which I don't know if there's any no. movement on that. No, it's uh, Top Gun 2, Top Gun Maverick, where... Oh, right. Actually, I didn't know Cruz that. Cruz is back uh, as Maverick. Val Kilmer's back as Iceman. And a hotly uh, coveted role, Miles Teller as Goose's son. Yep. Sign me up for that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, in, yeah I mean, I'll, I'll see it for sure. Um, it's, it's interesting. I don't I don't know it's already being made. how much I really want to... Yeah, I don't know how much I want to see a fighter pilot movie, but well, just those three in general, I'll And watch. I think that's what the plot's about, about the the lack of necessity for plane to plane combat in today's world. I think yeah. that's kind of the crux of the, of the, of the film. So, right. No, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, pretty much anything cruises in is going to be good. I mean, like you said, he dedicates more to the roles he does than almost any other actors. Yeah. So. It, well, it's interesting because this is his only franchise that's really worked, right? Like Jack Reacher, uh, the second one totally bombed critically and commercially. Mm-hmm. And that's probably over uh, the mummy. Uh, didn't do very well in the whole uh, Dark Universe franchise from Universal uh, was DOA, right? Um, then he made like American Made last year, which wasn't a franchise film, but it was critically reviewed, but didn't do as well at the box office. So it's weird that like he's kind of like struggled to make more of those franchise films. And like Edge of Tomorrow like, really stands out as something, right? And like he had Oblivion, which was like I can say like a near miss in that regard, but still good. So I don't know. It's um. It's weird watching his career now where he has, you know, I mean, this is his second biggest opening weekend behind War of the Worlds. He has not had a $100 million opening weekend in his whole career, which sounds crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, that's bizarre. But, like, one last thing. Do you think you can make Mission Impossible without Tom Cruise? You know, that they tried, whether officially or not, with Renner, and that obviously didn't work yeah. out. Do you think you could do it? I think he's so synonymous with Ethan Hunt and, like, his ability to do all these stunts. I just... Well, in theory, you could continue it, but would anyone be as interested? Yeah, you know, I've been, I was actually thinking about that when I was driving home yesterday, and I was trying to think of a franchise that's really handed it off and it's done well. You know, you think about Indiana Jones, they kind of had Shia LaBeouf, and they attempted the handoff with that one a little bit, and that didn't really no. land. And I can't really think of a franchise where it's gone well. So it, I'd probably say right now, no. But if you found the right person to kind of be his underling and, uh, See, the hard part about it is, like, Star Wars, they basically were like, this is the next three, and these are the people you're following, and Luke and Leia are tertiary characters, and they just made the decision for you. But if you go about it, and you're like, let's see how this person tests out, and the other person's still there as a main character, people are always going to want that person. It's almost like they kind of need to make a choice with it. Mm -hmm. I don't know who would be the right person to take it over. Um I go to um, Joel and Joel Edgerton comes to mind as somebody, but he might be a little too old. He's, so he's in his forties. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, and that that's the thing too. It's like a lot of like American. There's not a lot of like super hot American young actors. Right. A lot of them are British kids. And either way, like a lot of like the like the hot young actors, they take a while. Like Miles Teller is already in his thirties. You know, mm-hmm. and, like the people he's competing with this were like Nicholas Holt. And like Dylan O'Brien, right. the kid from the Maze Runner, right? Like, it's it's weird seeing 
the kind of inability for young young actors like that to really catch on with these franchises. So I don't know. It's interesting. What it what if it was uh, Taron Egerton, but he uh, they they go to like the British side. <laughs> Whatever that is. I like Terry Layton, but we'll see. Um, I, I'm not hopeful about that Robin Hood film he's in after the trailer, so we'll see. You might, you might need to do a franchise. That's true. Might need another one. Well, we'll they're probably make, they're making Kingsman 3, so we'll have that still. Yeah, that's true. I, I saw Kingsman 2 recently, by the way. It was, it was enjoyable. I mean, it was <laughs> it was fine. Now that's that's, re- like- that's shit that can get ridiculous, for sure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, that that's absurd, but uh, talk about suspending belief. Anyways, uh, I think... To kind of sum up the day, movie pass, dead, Santa Gold, pretty good, Denzel Curry, good, eighth grade, good, and Mission Impossible, a lot of fun, very good. Yes. A lot of good culture to be talking about this week. So if you want to give us some feedback, hit us up on Twitter at NostalgiaPod, go to our YouTube page and subscribe, leave some comments. We like to interact with people on there. And also uh, give us a rating and review on iTunes. We really appreciate all the feedback. So we got a big week coming up, dog. Fill me in. Well, three big albums in the hip-hop space on August 3rd. YG Stay Dangerous, Mac Miller's Swimming. Excited for both of those. Some lead singles are out already. And then just announced today, Travis Scott's Much in the in the Works Astroworld is finally coming this Friday. And, you know, he went to Hawaii to make this album, working with a lot of talented people. I have very high hopes for this. So I'm excited for all those records, but Astroworld's at the top of my list now. But also on Sunday, we have the Succession finale. Right. We haven't talked about Succession yet. We kind of got into it. Uh, it was already well in its way, so we're going to do a full season review next week of Succession. Mm-hmm. And also next Monday uh, is the season four premiere of Better Call Saul. Ah, Stuck for that as well. We can do a little preview for that. Indeed. We should try to catch up on that this week. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot to talk about. So be following us and share us with friends so that you can all be discussing it as well. Until next week, Gucci. Yeah.